Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 94, being recorded on Wednesday, July 19th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, Jason, I'm sitting here in 99-degree uh, sunny North Carolina. Where about in the world are you? I am in a relatively cool 94-degree New York City. Nice. Nothing like the uh, the odors of New York in uh, late July with ninety four degree weather. It's a it's a nice city for that. Exactly. I find that it really brings out the New York bouquet in the in the air. Yeah, but the city's usually pretty dead because everyone's in the Hamptons, and all you have is tourists. <laughs> exactly. Scott, I feel like this has been a super exciting week for you. I I have been living vicariously through you through some uh, exciting news going on this week. Yeah, for the fellow nerd slash geeks or whatever you like to call yourselves out there, this is a, it's a big kind of two-week, ten-day period. Uh, so you had last weekend D23, which is Star Wars kind of insiders conference, and they had a lot of good star – or that's a Disney conference. And Star Wars is owned by Disney, so they had a lot of interesting news there. Uh, also around Marvel, if you're into the superhero side of things. Uh, and then coming up soon, if not imminent, is – uh, Comic Con. I've never been to it. It's in San Diego, and and kind of a uh, quite a trip for me. It never. I've tried to go like four times, and it never works out. So I kind of gave up. But there'll be a lot of things announced there. And uh, so there was the sizzle reel for Last Jedi, which is exciting. That's the movie coming out this December. Uh, and then the thing I'm most excited about is they're doing Star Wars Land, which is going to be called the Edge of the Galaxy, and uh, they're going to do a resort in uh, the Orlando Resort. So that's going to be exciting. You'll you'll kind of go check in and uh, be assigned kind of a, you know, a persona, if you will. And I'm sure people will cosplay. I'm not a big cosplayer, but uh, I I think you and I haven't discussed it, but I think we should talk about having the Jason and Scott show there um, at launch in, in, in 2019 listeners that are excited. We can do a big lake, a whole meetup there and we'll have kind of a rebel versus Sith kind of thing on the podcast. And uh, it'll be great. At least five of us will really enjoy that podcast. I'm totally in. I'm putting it in my calendar right now. Yeah, well, uh, we have been doing a lot of deep dives and interviews lately, and we thought it would be a good time to get back to just news. There's a lot going on in the world of e-commerce, even though it's summer and you would expect e-commerce to be slow. There's a ton of news. And, of course, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without Amazon. So let's start with some Amazon news. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so, uh, Scott, we've obviously uh, did a whole show on the announcement that Amazon was acquiring Whole Foods, um, but there's been some follow-on conversation. Uh, There are a number of people that are speculating, uh, including Scott Galloway uh, did a video this week or last week, uh, speculating that uh, that the, uh, potentially the the acquisition won't be allowed to go through, and that that uh, the government will try to break it up. Yeah, you know, I think that's 
uh, an interesting perspective, but you know, I, th- I think Amazon's really smart, and the the two tech titans that have kind of tripped over this are IBM and Microsoft. And what ends up getting you with these monopoly things? Um, well, first of all, what ends up getting you with the government is being a monopoly, and you know, the definition of a monopoly from the government's perspective is you just have this obscenely large uh, market share, and they argue that this is bad for consumers or businesses because they don't have choice, prices go up, and those kinds of things. And I think I think Amazon has kind of, just because of their scale and what they do, they've inoculated themselves from this pretty well. So, for example, um, you know, in grocery, let's say, uh, you know, there there is no argument that says this will give Amazon a monopoly in grocery because you have, you know, Walmart so far ahead and then Kroger. And there's literally, you know, I think we talked about this makes them number six or seven in the market at kind of like eight or nine percent when you add up Whole Foods plus Amazon. So it's in it. So, so it's hard to make a case there. Um, and then it's also hard to make a case that this is going to hurt consumers because we all know prices are going to go down. So I think Amazon, by picking these huge addressable market areas that they're in and getting a small piece of them, and then also relentlessly driving prices down, um, you know, I, I think it, they're pretty inoculated from kind of a government kind of uh, rule. Even, even when you look at e-commerce, you know, you could say, well, they're like 30%, they're 25% of e-commerce, 30 to 33% if you count GMV, that's a monopoly. But then the pricing thing doesn't really come in there. And I think what Amazon would argue is, well, you know, you can't really look at e-commerce because it's all commerce. And, you know, when you look at all commerce, then Amazon has, you know, 4% of all commerce. So it certainly doesn't feel like a monopoly from a market share perspective. And then also it doesn't have a pricing thing. So I would actually disagree um, based on what we know today that Amazon will get split up um, because I think they're they're pretty safe from those two kind of pretty simple tests that the government uses to to look for monopolies. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I, I think like based on sort of the conventional wisdom, it, it would be highly unlikely because the, the first thing that happens is they have to define the market and the, the market that the relevant market here is likely going to be grocery. So it's not going to be online or offline and it's not going to be all of retail. It's it's going to be grocery and Whole Foods has less than 1% market share in grocery and Amazon has no market share in grocery. So, it you know, from that standpoint, uh, it, it's going to be real hard, hard to make a monopoly argument. And to your point, uh, in the U.S., uh, for, for antitrust, like – there has to be uh, tangible damage to consumers, which usually is lack of choice or price. And nobody's going to be able to make the argument that Amazon buying Whole Foods is going to drive prices up. If we were talking about Europe or something, it might be a different case because there they can make all these arguments that that the merger could impede innovation, which is bad for the consumers in the long run. But but the U.S. definition is much more narrow. So I just – I don't think it applies at all. I think the only chance um, – that that you know you, we might see some saber rattling rattling because I do think there's some politicians that are gonna you know want to want to make some hay by talking about it. But at the end of the day, um, it, it would require like a new antitrust theory and and dramatically new pol- enforcement policies to to really see them take action against this this uh, acquisition. Yeah, the, the one thing Scott did bring up that I I do think is interesting is. Um, you know, will Amazon be a trillion dollar company? And I think even more interesting is what is the first trillion dollar company going to be? And I, I think the three candidates are 
Amazon, Apple, and Google. And so just kind of like size that up for listeners. So so uh, the way we think about this is every stock has a market cap, which is essentially the number of outstanding shares times its current price. And right now, Apple is ahead with $787 billion market cap. Uh, and their stock's at about 151. So to get to a trillion, they need to go up, let's see, 10, 20, uh, 50%. So that would put their stock at like 225. Um, and then number two right now, you have Google, uh, also known as Alphabet now, uh, and they're at $670 billion, And their their stock is kind of similar to Amazon's right now. It's at about $1,000. So they'd effectively have to get up towards $2,000 in their stock, This is, you know, assuming there's no splits between now and that that mythical point when they hit a trillion. Amazon's actually the laggard. So, uh, you know, in amongst these three, so for, number one is Apple at 787. Number two is Google at 678. Uh, and then number three, and, and quite a distant number three, is Amazon at about five $500 billion, so half of the way to a trillion-dollar market cap. So their stock would have to go to 2000 So, you know, um, a lot of people would believe Apple will get there because we've got this kind of iPhone super cycle happening with the uh, often leaked, not not verified iPhone 8. Um, You're starting to see some negativity around that because a lot of the components, um, as these Wall Street guys dig into the supply chain, uh, it looks like it's going to be hard to get the components. So a lot of people are saying, A, it's going to be a very expensive phone, and then B, it's going to really push to next year the supply. So... Uh, you know, maybe this iPhone 8 super cycle doesn't happen or it's delayed. But anyway, it's going to be, you know, I think a lot of ha- things have to go Amazon's way um, to beat Apple there. Uh, and who knows, Google, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll have to see how they do. They've, they've got a lot of great things they're doing. Um, you know, some of these things in Google Labs probably need to hit for them to kind of get to that trillion dollars because it feels like search is kind of running out of gas a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's. Um, the one thing Amazon has going for them versus the other two is, uh, they have much smaller market share in a lot of their businesses. So there's a lot more headroom than it feels like there, there is for, for Apple and Google's mature businesses. To your point, if, if Google hits a home run with autonomous vehicles or something like that, that, that could certainly be the thing to do it too. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be watching it really close here at the Jason and Scott show. Um, other Amazon news. This actually happened a couple weeks ago while we were doing other shows, um, but I've heard some more recent conversation about it as well. And that was Nike's decision to start selling on the Amazon platform. And that was kind of a big deal because Nike had been sort of a, a vocal opponent of, of selling through Amazon. And so it was it was really seen in the marketplace as – Hey, some of the last brand holdouts, uh, Nike and Honest Company, which had both kind of overtly said they wouldn't, they, they they didn't think Amazon was right for their brand, are now both selling. And in in the case of Nike, that announcement had a had a favorable impact on Nike stock. It had a negative impact on all the other sporting goods stocks like Dick Sporting Goods. Um, and so you know, people were kind of saying like, Hey, this is another. Another Amazon milestone is they're getting all these holdout brands to sell on the platform. Um, but the the more recent conversation has been like it doesn't appear that Nike's necessarily embracing the platform and putting their whole product line on it and sort of like using it as a primary point of distribution. Um, you know, when you look at like what Nike had on the platform for Prime Day versus a lot of their competitors, you know, it was only a smattering of product. 
Um, and a lot of people have sort of taken the theory that that Nike has entered a business relationship with Amazon um, so that Nike will have more leverage and get more support from Amazon in protecting their brand um, and, uh, you know, enforcing, uh, you know, fake products on the platform. And that that really it's it's more of that level of a relationship than than it is, uh, you know, Nike selling all their goods uh, direct through Amazon. Yeah, and um, I, I wouldn't. Certainly, there's some counterfeit stuff, and Amazon's actually pretty good at, at you know, even before the relationship of policing, you know, anything that seems counterfeit. Um, but a lot of it is really more around third party and controlling the third party. And so, so as we, we had an inkling this was coming because a lot of third parties that sell Nike items uh, were alerted that you know, come July they wouldn't no longer be able to sell on the platform. So, so Nike definitely leveraged their power to control the third party marketplace. Now the question for Amazon is: Is the you know are they driving enough sales and selection through Nike to replace and even be you know, dramatically ahead of that? Was was that deal a good deal for Amazon? So it'll be interesting to watch that because Amazon has no qualms of kind of you know terminating deals if they're not making sense for consumers. So so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and you know there there's definitely an argument that Nike actually flexed its muscles and. You know, Amazon wanted them badly enough on the site that they they did this kind of very rare brand gating where they now gate this brand from third parties. And, you know, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of brands that have succeeded in doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see how that that all plays out. And regardless, it, it does get Nike on the platform. And once they get a taste, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen what they'll do. Like, you know, they could easily expand the assortment over time. Um, another interesting piece of news that made me think of you is uh, Amazon launched a new platform this week, which is called Amazon Spark. And uh, this is the latest in a series of new new tools that Amazon has offered uh, that are really about helping consumers with discovery. Um, and so, you know, you think of uh, Amazon as being a great destination when you know what you want and you use the search engine, you go right to your PDP and you buy the products. Um, but what Spark is really about is browsing visual content and having shoppable photos. So the photos can have hotspots in them. The hotspots are linked to uh, to Amazon ASINs, and you, you, you can uh, sort of reveal and add to cart button and put stuff in your cart straight from these, these photos. So this gives a tool to um, influencers and affiliates to start – publishing their own Pinterest-style visual content on the Amazon platform, and uh, shoppers can curate that content based on their personal interests. And when they, you know, uh, see a picture of a toddler playing with some blocks that you think would be fun for your child, you can you can click on the blocks and, and add them to your cart. So an interesting new uh, shopping model for, for Amazon, um, and it made me think of you because – uh, a couple weeks ago, you published this uh, very cool Amazon scape, uh, sort of listing all of the the different tools in the Amazon ecosystem. And as we, you know, put together the outline for tonight's show, I couldn't help but thinking that your your three week old Amazon scape is is wildly out of date already. Yeah, yeah, that thing is a blessing and a curse. Uh, like some of these kind of projects, I seem to bite off. Uh, I, there's there's a good like six things I need to add onto there already, which is which is pretty amazing considering it is three weeks old. Uh, and then we're, we know we don't really talk about a lot of the cloud-based stuff on the show, but there's already been several cloud things I need to add on there. 
Um, and this, this kind of is a good uh, kind of switch or segue into uh, Jeff Wilkie. I think that's how you say his name, W-I-L-K-E. I've always heard people at Amazon call him Wilkie. Um, you could, I guess you could argue that the E is silent and it's Wilk, but um, he's a pretty senior guy at Amazon, and I have never seen him speak. Um, and he was actually, Fortune had one of these kind of frou-frou, Aspen-y things called the Brainstorm Tech Conference. Uh you and I were too busy to accept our invitations to keynote. So um, maybe next year we'll be there. But um, uh, Jeff Wilkie was, he was evidently had a lot of free time and popped on over there. Uh, he runs the, he's effectively, he's got like a CEO title, which is really unusual. A lot of people behind the scenes say that he is the likely success, successor to Jeff Bezos. Although that's all, all whispers and not a, it has not been designated that Anyway, I've never seen this guy talk, and he was he was really excellent. And so we'll put a show note up. There's like a 30-minute video from a talk he gave. Um, a lot of these Amazon guys, they come to these shows, they don't really talk about Amazon uh, in a meaty way. And um, But what I like to do is pick up tidbits of culture. And, and you know, the one question, having built some businesses, is – how do they do so much? And, you know, obviously they have like 300,000 people and you can do a lot, but, you know, I, I've been in, I've visited large companies like that and they just get so wrapped up and caught up in PowerPointness and meetings and, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, this interview is really good because he spends a fair amount of time talking about that. And it's funny. He says, you know, his, his, the short answer is um, they create separable single threaded teams. So, uh, it's it's almost like a develop it, the approach they've taken with cloud computing is like their cultural approach. So it's almost like every team at Amazon is its own little service and gets to focus on that service. And if it needs to work externally, um, that's fine. It'll it'll kind of create a little mechanism for doing that. But then that team spends ninety nine percent of their time focusing on it. Um, the interviewer had no idea what he meant by that. And so, so he went out and brought a couple examples and he kind of said, you know, what we'll do is we'll, we, in the early days of Alexa, we hired one person and all they did was think about Alexa and we didn't, we didn't tie them up with anything. It didn't have to, you know, tie in with the rest of the system or anything like that. We talked to people that are like Microsoft and some of these other companies. That's what starts to really hamstring them is there's a funny story. Like the early Xbox almost died because they wanted to have internet Explorer as like the main window on it. Like the IE team wanted it to, you know, to have that. So, so they, they actually, you know, create these little teams at Amazon, create leaders, they go build teams and nothing gets in their way. And that's just pretty amazing at the scale Amazon is that, you know, there's not a legal team, a brand team. You, and when you get in these larger companies, and I'm sure you interact with them daily, um, it, it becomes a culture of no. And, you know, somehow Amazon has created this kind of, you know, primordial soup that still continues that allows many ideas to flourish and die. And, 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 you know, it seems like they're going to, with that culture, they'll be innovating and out innovating a lot of companies for a long time. So if you're interested in that topic, uh, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. There's a 30 minute video that's very much worth your time. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, the interesting thing, you know, talking about, uh, software development as sort of a, a metaphor for organizational design. He he even talked about uh, the way the teams interacting with each other being sort of like an API where you 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 had defined inputs and outputs and that's all you worried about and you you know other than that you know leaders in one business weren't getting involved or getting in the in the shorts of leaders of the other businesses which which uh, you know as he was saying it made a lot of sense. Yeah, I've been at Amazon meetings where. Uh, and Amazon is a very buttoned up company, but because they're so singularly focused, you'll go and 
So like the 1P and the 3P teams don't really know each other or how their systems work. And um, it's kind of funny. Like we'll have to explain that to each of them. We'll be like, well, you know, did you guys know you have this seller central thing over here? And it's got this, that, and the other. And like, really? Who who runs that? And you're like, I, you work for Amazon, right? Uh, it, it's just kind of really interesting. It, it, you know, it does create a little misalignment in some ways, but I think what they've done is they've done the calculus and said that, you know, focus and moving quick is better than alignment in some, some ways. Um, maybe alignment's not the right word, but like a little bit of duplication of effort happens. So, um, you know, I think what having built again, a relatively large organization, you start to really worry, you know, gosh, are we duplicating effort here? And you make sure these teams are talking and sharing stuff. And it doesn't, it seems like Amazon, they've just torn all that out. It's just like, go as fast as you need to, you know, go fast and break stuff. And uh, it's easier said than done in a company this size. So I, I thought that was really interesting, um, that talk. So highly recommend it. Uh, for sure. And and that, that model probably explains uh, how they're able to maintain this incredible pace of innovation. Um, and, you know, part of that innovation is all these new product offerings that, that are launching that we're having to talk about on the show. And it, it's it has the unintended consequence of the podcast sometimes feeling like an Amazon podcast because um, I'm, I'm looking at that line this this week. And, you know, sure enough, they launched a ton of products. We already talked about Spark. Um, you know, another big one this week is meal kits. Right. And so um, they they've launched their own meal kits, which, uh, you know, uh, caused a very negative reaction uh, on the part of uh, a blue apron and some of the traditional competitors there. Um, but they, they just seem like they're able to innovate and get these, these products in new categories and new services out incredibly quickly. And, and obviously part of the reason they do that is because they're, you know, they're all, they're all independent and running in parallel as opposed to having dependencies on each other. Yeah. Meal kits was interesting because it was almost kind of like uh accidental news because so a company in the UK saw that one of the Amazon entities created a trademark for, for meal kits. And I think the trademark is some, it's like a more of a slogan and it says something like um, we prepare it, you cook it. And that's kind of the, what then they pulled that thread and they found that they're working on meal kits. Well, it's funny because I had a friend um, uh, and, and what I heard is it, it, it was going to be for fresh only. So I had a friend look into this and meal kits have actually been sold on fresh for like 90 days. Uh, and uh, it started with a couple and they were Amazon meal kits. Uh, and now they actually have about 20 meal kits. And, um, you know, what, what's cool about these is there's a good, better, best. So the Amazon brand is a lot like Amazon basics. It's a basic meal. Um, it's usually a beef, a chicken, a pork, uh, and a vegetarian option. And it's $19. Then they have third parties selling on there. So there's another one and it's called Tyson and something. And it's more like $25 and it's all chicken because it's Tyson. And you can tell they've come up with the recipes and everything. And the food quality goes up a little bit. Uh, and then there's a fancier one uh, that's called Martha and something. And that one is like 35 and it's got, you know, skirt steak and fancy sauces and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it, it's really interesting that, you know, very, you know, I would argue they're already on generation four, whereas a lot of these delivery subscription kits, you know, uh, they're not a 
great customer experience in many ways. You and I have talked about how we've all tried them and, and a lot of people terminate. And, you know, the problem is you don't control when the food comes. You're just on this relentless treadmill of food. And if there's a meal you don't like, you kind of feel obligated to, you don't get to pick the meal. And so Amazon, by just kind of having these meal kits that seem, you know, there's good, better, best. So number one, there's three price points. And number two, I get to pick it and when I want it. And it just seems like a more natural way of doing this, this kind of prepared meal thing versus having it kind of like come on this kind of relentless schedule where you, you fall behind and start to feel guilty. You're not cooking all your meals. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the order on demand component is a, is a big win. Like I, you know, I've been doing a lot of consumer research for some clients and you people, uh, Meal planning and healthy eating and fresh foods are all very high on the decision tree for consumers, but at the same time, they're super uh, times uh, compressed and they they have very limited bandwidth. And so meal kits really fit uh, that niche that they they let families feel like they're making fresh, healthy food, um, and they save the family time. And to your point, uh, you know, when you can order them on demand, you can pick the taste that you want, you know, on the date you want and not have the sort of relentless pressure of a mandatory subscription coming to your house. Another interesting uh, thing about the meal kicks is that it seems like they're showing some real food innovation. Um, So one of the things I read was uh, that they would be offering uh, ground beef hamburger patties uh, made from single cows. And so, you know, uh, one of the, the the health challenges with ground beef is, you know, you get meat from a bunch of different animals, and if any one of those animals have any diseases, then you're potentially at risk, and so that that forces everyone to to make sure that the ground beef is is uh, cooked sufficiently to to kill all those viruses, and so you don't get the super juicy, flavorful meat. So by offering single cow ground beef, they they offer a product that's safer to cook at a lower temperature and. Like I it just had never considered that before. And you think about the the challenging logistics of, you know, making that product in a meat processing plant. And, you know, it seems like Amazon's, you know, signing up for some pretty significant innovation there versus just sort of outsourcing these foods to from the traditional suppliers. Yeah, and uh, just so everyone's clear, this is available to Amazon Prime Fresh subscribers, which is that full-on grocery deliver delivery subscription. Um, but you know, I think we've seen this program where they test things there, they ramp them up, they get them to you know thirty, forty, fifty SKUs. Then it would be very easy for them to move this across platforms. The next platform I would expect to see it in would be Prime Now, um, and then obviously like the the pickup and the go in Seattle, but that's that's kind of a small footprint. Um, and then it, you know, uh, prime now would put it into 40, 45 markets. Uh, that would be interesting. And then, you know, at that point they could figure out how to make it part of just kind of the normal Amazon kind of infrastructure. So, uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch them with these meal kits and we'll keep reporting what we see there. Um, Another just kind of tidbit for you, uh, my friend is in the beta for the Amazon Prime pickup, and he's tried it two or three times, and every time he tries it, he picks a – he like literally lives 20 miles away from the pickup center. He, he sets a 15-minute window, and it's ready in five minutes. He, he's like he's, – he said it's like the best thing that they have ever tried for grocery. It's just like – the, the availability window seems high. Now that could be a part of the pilot program. Maybe they're not just putting a lot of people through there, but the, it is so far really under promised and over delivered as far as the timing and the 
the he said the quality of the food is very good, um, and he they they actually kind of prefer it to fresh in some ways because it kind of gives them a little bit more control over when they get things, and uh, so so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it, everywhere we've seen a testing of of online pickup in store for grocery, like you you see huge adoption. So. That doesn't surprise me. A, a funny anecdote I saw, um, a professional chef in Seattle wrote a review of Amazon Go where she, she ordered some ingredients um, and similar experience. She had, she had great service there, um, but she g- gave the, the actual food products that she got sort of mediocre results. Like some were apparently like very high quality ingredients and some of them were pretty disappointing, including like – this this uh, marquee piece of fish that she bought, I guess, I guess, was pretty disappointing. And what was funny about it is she wrote this as a review that got published in the New Yorker, and so it's this like you know well written two thousand word word review. And she published a link to the New Yorker article on Twitter and CC'd Amazon Help, their customer service bot. Um, and the automated response from the the bot to this link with this long article was. Uh, you know, we're, we're sorry you experienced a problem. Can you please give us a little more detail about what, <laughs> what went wrong? <laughs> Bots gone awry. Exactly. That's a, that's actually a good segue into there's a, uh, now this one's kind of in the rumor category. So this is un, un, uh, known if this is going to happen or not, uh, unverified, I guess I should say. But, uh, a lot of people have gotten surveys asking about, uh, an Amazon messaging app that appears to be called according to the survey anytime, um, and this is kind of like one of those things where you scratch your head and you're like, why would Amazon do messaging? You know, clearly all these messaging apps are out there and way ahead. But I do think Amazon has a couple things going for them. So uh, the popularity of Alexa. So it'd be interesting to kind of have a voice component to messaging. You know, so so right now none of these messaging systems really connect well into voice. So that's kind of interesting. Um, with the new Amazon uh, Echo Show, uh, I believe uh, – have you had a chance to play with yours yet? I have, yeah, yeah. It's got a little bit of a social network kind of a thing going with it. So, so I think they're kind of getting, you know, they may be seeing some early data there that says, hey, this is kind of an interesting. We, we, you know, maybe there's a chance we could build a little bit of a social network here. So, so if you on your phone, if you give it access, it slurps in your contacts, and now you can call other people that have those devices. So, so it's almost that. And then I think the third thing is this kind of AI engine. Now we don't know all that they're building in there. You can see some hints of it through AWS. And if you remember, we had Andrea on the show and she was talking about this hands off the wheel initiative where, um, you know, the, you're as a vendor, you're sitting there negotiating with through chat system and it's actually a robot on the other side. And most vendors don't even realize it's a robot. So they apparently have some really amazing internal AI technology. Maybe you've seen it on that help bot you mentioned. Um, so it'll be, you know, interesting. That's kind of one of the ways they could commercialize this. You know, and then you think, how can Amazon use the messaging? Well, you know, imagine you could ask Amazon about any product. Um, you know, you could send messages between Alexas and all of the devices. So I don't, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if uh, this one becomes real and what they're using it for. Yeah, I, I'm of mixed feelings. Uh, you, know, you know, always interesting to see innovative new products, and if it's way better than the the current state of messaging apps, like that, that could be appealing. I sort of. Um, have a little bit of messenger fatigue at the moment. I feel like I have, you know, a, a community of people that communicate via SMS or um, via uh, uh, Apple iMessage or via uh, Google Voice Chat, and you know, so part of me is worried about fragmenting this messaging even further um, with another app not feeling super appealing. 
Um, I have to say that I have found the the drop in feature on the Alexa more useful than I expected to. Um, so in my house, it's it's actually getting used as a pretty useful intercom, right? Like, so you know, my wife will be putting our son to bed, and it'll be time to read a story, and she, you know, she can just with her voice while she's holding our son, you know, drop in on the room I'm in and tell me that we're we're ready for story time. Um, and that kind of stuff super interest has been really useful in our house. I'm less fired up to be able to drop into a family member's house and use that versus all the other other messaging tools we have. So so we'll have to see how that all plays out. Yeah, and another angle and I forgot to mention this is there's a lot of rumors that Slack is out there for sale and and it's a business productivity chat app really for lack of a better word. So maybe what what we're hearing is really going to be less consumery and more kind of business productivity. And that would actually slot in well with kind of these productivity apps that they've been putting out like Chime and whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see if what direction they go here. Absolutely. And and let me just say uh Slack message fragmentation is the bane of my existence because I'm a member of about 50 Slack teams and it's it's pretty hard to monitor them all at once. Uh, so hopefully Amazon does acquire them and fixes that. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Another service that came out uh, was their home installation service. And so a lot of people have kind of taken to calling this uh, Amazon's version of Geek Squad. And I'm not sure this is completely confirmed, but there were a number of uh, job listings that were sort of a precursor to this service that made it seem like these were going to be W-2 employees that Amazon was actually hiring um, that would do home installation of things like consumer electronics. Um, and so, uh, you know, we haven't had the test yet, but on Prime Day, I had my mother buy a, a new printer for her house that she needed, and uh, she purchased that with home installation from Amazon. So we'll... Uh, hopefully in a future podcast, be able to talk about how well that goes. Yeah, maybe we could have your mom in a, on as a guest. How awesome would that be? Uh, it would be totally awesome. The downside would be that, you know, that would we'd lose our number one listener that week. Mm, yeah, you're right. She would probably still listen, though. I think we should do it. Gotcha. Um, well, I, <laughs> I, I, I will mention it to her when I when I get the, the printer install recap. But it is interesting to me that they're adding services. And, you know, in the old days, it felt like uh, they were really trying to build a business that didn't require human interaction. And, you know, there was all this talk about, like, if we ever if you ever need to talk to a human that we did our job wrong. And, you know, more recently – a ton of the services are dependent on humans and, you know, you're seeing Amazon hire a lot more people and, and create jobs. And, you know, I felt like, you know, despite the fact that this home installation was a brand new service, it was heavily promoted on prime day. And, um, you know, it was, it was both, it both had prominent space on the, on the PDPs and, and it was uh, being offered at some aggressive promotional prices as well. Yeah. And they have, um, this is on my Amazon scape, but they also have a whole marketplace called, uh, Amazon home services. And, uh, it doesn't have, so, so there's kind of two entry points. The, where it's popular is in checkout upsell. So if you're buying a big screen TV or uh, a printer and you want to buy insulation, they get a pretty good attach rate there. Um, where we're not seeing a lot of volume is when people kind of go through the top of the funnel and kind of say, Oh, I'm going to go to Amazon and get my house cleaned. Um, and it's just think, I think people don't think that way. Um, and they, they try to boil the ocean. There's like literally everything you could do, uh, in one place. And it's, it's a little bit of a watered down buyer experience, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm obviously kind of deep into this on demand services world. And I think Amazon, you know, it, 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 
I'm interested in it for a lot of the reasons Amazon is. I, I, I suspect it's it's a very big, huge addressable market. If you look at GDP, it's eighty uh, percent um, pro- uh, services, twenty percent products. So uh, you know it's four times as big in theory as products, and it's a terrible customer experience. You know, think about when was the last time you had a great service at your home. Um, you know, you have no power in the thing. You get these delivery windows. The guy never shows up. If he does, he knocks and runs. It's just like a really terrible experience. So, so I think there's, there's a really big addressable market there that that's probably pretty interesting to Amazon and we'll have to kind of see how serious they get about it. Yeah. That's going to be another super interesting one to watch. And then the last, um, New service I noticed is uh, sort of a back of house service for brands. Um, for for a number of years, Amazon has offered branded landing pages, um, but they were pretty rudimentary. And so last month they they did a major refresh to the brand pages, um, and these new pages are pretty cool. They're they're uh, based on a much more modern framework. They're based on a React framework. Um, but what's cool is. You can now have multiple pages of URLs for your for your brand page. So, you know, if you're a, a brand that has multiple categories of products, you can, you know, have your own navigation with links to a to a category page um, within your brand page, which is uh, a pretty common need and something that they didn't support before. So, multi-page brand landing pages is really powerful. Um, they've added the ability to support rich media, which is huge. Um, for a long time, we've, we've actually advised con- uh, clients to put a lot of brand content uh, in what's called the A-plus section of their PDPs. And that's because, you know, maybe someone's just shopping for your brand, but typically in Amazon, when they search for the brand, the, the result's going to take them to a PDP. And so the PDP had to sort of be the the main page for each individual SKU or ASIN, but it also had to kind of act as an ambassador for that category of product. And so so you saw a lot of, of folks commonly put rich media in their PDPs that was really meant to be at the category or brand level. And so now they've they've enabled you to put all that content where it really belongs on its own own brand pages. And that's super powerful. And then, you know, uh, uh, equally helpful, they, they've added a real CMS in Vendor Central that lets you kind of manage these pages pretty easily, you know, even for a business user, not necessarily a, a technical or creative user. So this is a pretty new feature that uh, if if you are a brand selling on Amazon, you know you should have on your roadmap to be implementing these pages as quickly as possible because at, at the moment it's definitely a competitive advantage for the folks that have adopted it. And I always like to point people to like the the Happy Belly brand page, you know, which is Amazon's own product, to see what you know some of the best practices are. Yeah, and um, you know what's interesting is a lot of these e-commerce platforms, especially the SMBs, have pivoted because there's not a lot of small retailers that are doing this that well out there in the world. So most of them have pivoted towards brands. And, you know, I saw this as a little bit of a shot across the bow of some of those guys essentially saying, you know, we're, we have a lot of leverage with brands and this could actually be a pretty nice e-commerce site for brands over time. Uh, Amazon had been in the, the web web store business. They got out of that. And I'm not saying they're going back into it, but when I looked at this, I kind of thought, you know, if I'm a brand, what, what else do I need? You know, it, it's almost, uh, it, it, it's, it feels very modern and kind of next generation. So I'm interested to see what else they do with this. Yeah. And it, it definitely like just the, 
the trend of adding better tools for sellers is is very welcome. So uh, hopefully they they do a lot more. Yeah, and while I was uh, just just now poking around, I noticed they've moved up to the homepage the treasure truck. So. Um, so the treasure truck, I don't know the genesis of this to you, but it's kind of legendary in Seattle. So every day there's this truck that drive around and it has like, it almost feels like something Woot would do, but I don't think it's associated with those guys, uh, which Amazon owns. But every day there's like a great deal. So people in Seattle, you get a text and it'll say the treasure truck is by the museum and it has, you know, a backpack for half off or something like that. Um, and you rush down there and get it. And it's like, uh, supposedly really fun. And uh, I was meaning to mention it earlier because they, they've put the meal kits on the treasure truck, which is they put a lot of beta stuff on there. So that was interesting. But now I've noticed today they pushed a video out with kind of a funny pirate. And now they have on the homepage where the truck is going to be traveling around the country. So that's kind of an interesting new thing. Um, and good news, it's already on the Amazon scape. So I was, I was, that was one I knew about. Nice. Uh, I've actually run into the treasure truck truck at some events. So they, they send it, for example, to Las Vegas for CES. And I, I actually asked the driver if, uh, if he considered it sort of uh, woot on wheels and he, he was actually a little offended. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, another couple uh, tidbits of news. So um, after the, the frothy prime day, uh, there was some interesting analyst out on the wall street uh, with some reports uh, so first of all, Credit Suisse uh, came out and they have a new analyst there and he picked up his coverage of Amazon. And what I thought was refreshing is most of these guys, you and I have talked about this on the show a lot, but uh, a lot of folks still don't understand that Amazon has effectively two businesses. There's the retail business, which we call 1P. And in that line of business, everything they sell counts as revenue. So if they sell a $100 widget, $100 of revenue. Pretty simple, same as retail. But the one that trips everyone up is the third-party part, which is the marketplace. So if they sell a $100 widget, Amazon can only recognize the revenue from that widget, which is their commission or their take rate across Amazon at, on average is about 10%. So they sell a widget for $100, and Amazon gets to recognize $10 of revenue because of gap accounting rules. Uh, I always have argued for a long time, and I was kind of like, the only guy out there saying this, and now most people have kind of come over, that you can't really think of Amazon that way because uh, when Walmart, let's say that that $100 widget was a pair of Nike shoes and uh, and uh, you know Dick's lost out on $100, not $10. So when you actually unpack all that, and we used to have to do this through a pretty arcane mechanism. Now Amazon gives you a lot of clues to get there. Um, it, it Effectively, the punchline is you think of Amazon as about a $130 billion uh, retailer. Well, they're actually about $250 billion. So Credit Suisse was out and they had, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting. They, they actually kind of had a 2017 estimate of 238 billion, uh, and they kind of see them getting pretty close to 500 billion over the next couple of years, which is which is pretty amazing. That would be uh, kind of Walmart territory. Um, so I thought that was a good report. Um, and then some of these things are surveys. So you, you know, you and I are not huge fans of surveys, uh, but RBC had one out. Let me pull up some of the more salient things here, um, and it was kind of interesting. So some of the RBC is Mark Mahaney. He's kind of uh, a very kind of legendary. Um, um, analyst on Walmart, I mean, sorry, on Amazon. And some of his survey questions were interesting. So, um, you know, you hear from a lot of people, well, no one wants same day or next hour delivery. Uh, and in his survey, you know, something like 60% of the people said, well, of course I would love this and I would use it on a, on a regular basis. Uh, here's some more. Um, uh, 
They talked about uh, some category questions. Um, so uh, only 7% of those surveyed, and this is a survey of quantity, about 2,000 people. And only 7% said they had tried grocery, but 13% said they wanted to buy more grocery. So, you know, kind of signals a, a large intent of an interest there. Um, the top categories that were purchased on Amazon, according to the survey, were apparel, electronics, home furnishings. None of those are surprises. But the, the fourth one I thought you'd be interested in is CPG. So 31% of the folks had bought a CPG item on Amazon. Uh, I, I don't think they've done this multiple years, but I bet if we if they had, CPG would be down there with grocery last year. So something you know something's going on and people are buying more CPG at Amazon, which I think bodes well for their grocery business. Um, uh, 12% said they use same day delivery. Um, so that's up from, uh, 2015, which was 6%. So doubling. And then, uh, yep. Prime is best. Uh, and then, uh, this is pretty fascinating. So they asked which, uh, online retail site has the lowest prices, uh, Amazon 64%. The next closest was Walmart and eBay at 11%, um, which has the best selection, Amazon at 82%, eBay at 6%, Walmart at 4%, which is the most convenient, uh, Amazon 76%, Walmart eight, eBay five. So these charts are funny. They're bar charts and they're so tall. They had to kind of change the perspective to even pull some of the retailers in, into the chart. Uh, so, so if you think about if those, you know, this is kind of a classic Bezos thing that he said in his, his 97 letter, we think people won't get tired of low prices, great selection and convenience slash free shipping. Uh, and yeah, turns out, I think he was right. Uh, <laughs> and that that's kind of the recipe for, for how well they've been doing. So we'll, we'll put a link to that up in the show notes for those that are kind of like want to get super geeky on this stuff. But, you know, my takeaway was CPG is on the rise at Amazon. Uh, Prime is huge. Uh, and Amazon has just pulled away so far from comp- competitors. They don't even really show up on the radar anymore, which, which, you know, I, I think would be disheartening if I was out there competing with Amazon. Uh, for sure. But speaking of competitors, they're not necessarily pulling away from, uh, I did see a couple interesting pieces of non-Amazon news, and one of them is from uh, our friends at Alibaba, um, which which certainly is holding their own, obviously, in different markets uh, uh, against Amazon. But uh, I find it kind of funny, you know. Uh, you know, Alibaba invented this this holiday Singles Day, and you know, one could argue that 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 Prime Day was kind of a knockoff on on uh, uh, Singles Day. Um, well, I uh, f- stumbled across a cool video, which I'll post a link to, of a physical grocery store um, that was designed and opened by Alibaba called Hema Supermarket, and so this is a a fairly digital, high service. Um, grocery store in China, um, and it, it both has some kind of e-commerce innovations. There's uh, click and collect, and there you know a ton of, of shoppers are picking orders, and they have like a good infrastructure for helping those those uh, shoppers pick their orders from the shelf. Um, they have a barcode on every SKU, and you can scan them with the Alibaba app. You can you know quickly check out using uh, AliPay and things like that. And then they had some of the the usual cultural differences of of uh, Asian supermarkets versus Western supermarkets. So, uh, for example, most of the seafood is live, and you you actually 
pick your own crawfish or your own lobster, like, you know, out of a bin with tongs and you can actually hand it to a chef who will then prepare your, your freshly selected seafood for you to, to consume right in the store. So some interesting things there. And it, you know, just occurred to me, uh, you know, what a, what a coincidence that they would, you know, be getting in grocery and, you know, with some Amazon go-ish feeling features, um, you know, it feels like these these two giants are are heavily uh, sort of borrowing or competing with each other at the moment. Yeah, I think we should do a Jason Scott show uh, road kit. We'll have to work with our sponsors to see if we can get a, a week at that show at store. I'm not sure either of us are an adventure enough eater to be like we might have to bring someone with us. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Uh, another kind of interesting startup that launched uh, that got a fair amount of fanfare. Uh, I think it was because they raised capital. Uh, is called Brandless, and I was so curious about this one. I, I had to go and and order some stuff, so it actually came today. Um, and first of all, it's kind of it's super ironic because you get this very vanilla brown box, and all it has is on like eighty pound eighty point font is Brandless trademark, <laughs> and you're kind of like. All right, your brand is brandless, and they care about their brand, but then everything they talk about is being unbranded, yet they're branded with the word brandless. Um, it's kind of hard to – everyone at, at work was, like, really confused by the whole thing, and it, it, I I gave up trying to explain, explain it. But what these guys do is it's kind of like taking that private label, unbranded, you know, peanut butter or something and productizing it. And so their whole brand promise is you don't play, quote, unquote, the, the brand tax. And then everything is $3. So uh, let's see, I ordered um, some K-Cups and have not tried those yet. But, you know, the dollar, the 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 cost per K-Cup is about half of a branded one uh, or a little bit less. So that's a pretty good deal if it ends up being good. Um, some of the things that, that people in the office really liked is they had good snacks. So they had quinoa crisp, which were essentially healthy Cheetos. So those were popular. Uh, and then um, they had a wide selection of candies that were, were brandless. So they had, you know, the equivalent, they had gummy worms and gummy bears and this kind of thing. And um, everyone felt like the quality of those was really good. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, I'll keep you posted on some of the other stuff we try, but it, it was kind of a fun kind of a gimmick and it was you know, good enough that I, I gave it a shot and, and yeah, you know, worked really well, came quickly. The products seem to be pretty good. Interesting. They're, they're getting a lot of buzz cause they, they're sort of a mashup of all the popular trends right now. Right. So that, you know, they have hundreds of products that are essentially a CPG company with like food and cleaning products and, and, you know, all the, all the things you would think of, of, of a, a, a craft and a PNG, you know, kind of assortment. Um, but they're also heavy on the, on the, organic quality, transparent sourcing. And so, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of ingredients that aren't allowed in the products and they have, have this like high quality organic story and then they're to your point a good value. So, you know, $3 for a premium product, uh, that, that based on the name you would assume doesn't invest a bunch of money in advertising, right? Like they're brandless. Um, and so it seems super interesting, I have to say, I, I think there's a huge flaw in their current business model. And so not to say, you know, that they won't pivot and discover a successful model. But the the problem I have is you see them and you instantly think private label. And so you go, oh, private label has been successful. These guys should be successful. But the the huge difference between brandless and private label is 
you don't have to do marketing for private label product, right? Because you you put the bleach on the shelf in the supermarket right next to the Clorox bleach. And and people walk to that shelf with buying intent and they see the private label is is cheaper than the the national brand. And so some people will, you know, make that trade-off. Um, brandless isn't in a, on a shelf next to a, another product, right? Like there's there's no one walking by. The only place to buy brandless is on brandless.com and brandless.com has no organic traffic. So guess what brandless is going to have to do in order to get people to discover them and come to their site and buy their stuff? Advertise. They're going to have to spend a fortune on advertising, right? And and so the the closest model we have are are the guys at Jet that were spending, you know, originally a hundred dollars a consumer for acquisition costs, and you know maybe got it down to fifty bucks a consumer. And so the irony here is, you know, they're calling themselves brandless and trying to position themselves as a product that doesn't have to sink a bunch of money in advertising, but they're probably going to have to spend a fortune on advertising to get people to go to their site. And I would argue they even have a worse problem. You know, they can't advertise $3 peanut butter and get someone to come to the site that just wants peanut butter. Because the other thing, you know, while they're $3 products, you have to buy 26 of them to get free shipping. And as Jeff Bezos already proved, uh, nobody wants to buy anything without free shipping. Um, and so you have to find a consumer that's all in and willing to order 26 products to get the free shipping. And so that the ads you have to run, the, the Google PLAs, you know, probably can't even be at the product level. They have to be at this like, you know, CPG level. And I, I just think that's that's going to be a really challenging story for them to digitally acquire consumers that want to buy that many products from them. So I, I'm, I'm sure we'll see them pivot on their shipping model. They have a club at the moment, which you pay money to just reduce the shipping costs, which I'm not confident in. Um, and, you know, eventually, like, they'll either have to decide to distribute through places that already have buying intent, like Amazon or traditional retailers, or um, they're going to have to spend an awful lot of money to get people to their site. Yeah, it, it um, maybe it's because the, the two boxes came within days of each other, but it reminded me of boxed. So um, very much kind of similar box size model and, and, you know, fill the box to get it shipped to you kind of thing. Yep. Uh, other little pieces of news. Um, this one was kind of interesting to me, uh, but in separate announcements over the last two weeks, both um, Apple Pay and Samsung Pay have announced that they will allow you to use PayPal as a method of payment on their their digital wallets. Um, and to me, that's a pretty big piece of news um, for two reasons. Number one, there are, there are kinds of tender you can have in PayPal that you couldn't have in Apple Pay, for example. So um, you can have your checking account, you know, and do electronic fund transfers linked to PayPal. You you can't do that in Apple Pay. But now you can link your checking account to PayPal, put PayPal in your Apple Pay digital wallet, and now you can use the super, you know, seamless uh, Apple Pay experience uh, to pull money straight out of your checking account, no credit card required. Um, and so that that seems pretty interesting. It seems like a big win for PayPal that both of these these digital wallets, you know, which are in some ways competitive with PayPal, have both decided to support PayPal. And you know, my my very superficial read is if Apple Pay and Samsung Pay were getting a ton of traction onboarding their own customers. Uh, they probably wouldn't want to accept PayPal. And the fact that they are accepting PayPal is probably a nod to the fact that that an awful lot more consumers have stored their payment information with PayPal than than either Apple or Samsung are getting organically. And so they're they're having to go to where the payment cards are. Hmm. 
Yeah, very interesting. So I guess it signals weakness, right? Uh, potentially, yeah. That's certainly the way I read yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I've had a frustrating time with these things. So I, I was an early adopter on Apple Pay. And then between like updating my phones and my watches, I have to re – it like deletes all my credit cards every time and I have to re-add them. I, I have given up, and you'd think I would be like the perfect person for this. But literally that cycle of going in and out with my credit card so many times has made me just be like, oh, it's easier to use the stupid – bonky chip thing i i would totally argue with you except that like none of my cards are in my apple watch right now for that very reason mm-hmm. uh-huh retail geek called you out i'll, I'll fix it right <laughs> after the show <laughs> cool one thing i saw that was interesting is we talk a lot about digital native vertical brands uh, we've had mod cloth on the show bonobos uh also known as uh walmart and uh everlane is one of the popular DNVBs and the big trend with these guys is opening up pop-up stores or uh, physical stores. So Everlane announced they're opening a store uh, and I believe it's going to be, they're going to open up a store in the San Francisco mission uh, and then they're going to have some pop-ups um, at their headquarters and then also in New York city. Uh, very cool. I'm, uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing what they do in the permanent store. Um, you know, they, they've uh, had a lot of innovation on their website and, you know, do a lot of interesting things. So hopefully they'll, they'll have a fresh take on retail as well. Yeah, I think you should get up at like 6 a.m. tomorrow and go check it out. Uh, unfortunately, I think the first, that, that first store is only going to be in the Mission District, and I don't think they've even announced a date yet. So uh, that may be a later show. Um, I think there's a pop-up in New York. You can there, there is a pop-up, but I, I have been to that. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and for the record, I will be up at 6, 6 a.m. tomorrow anyway. So for my client that's expecting to see me, I'll, I'll be there. Um, the, <laughs> uh, another one that I saw um, and uh, is a new e-commerce platform. Um, so this very cleverly named platform, it's called New Store. Um, and it's, it's from a, a well-known character in the e-commerce platform space, uh, a guy, and I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his last name right, but I, I call him Steve uh, Schombach. Um, and uh, Steve is well-known for having founded a company called Intershop, which is uh, a, a well-established e-commerce platform uh, originally from Germany. It kind of, frankly, it grew up with Hybris. Uh, Hybris got sold for a large amount of money to to SAP, um, and Intershop really didn't get uh, as much traction. Um, but what what Intershop was most well known for is it was the platform that GSI Commerce was based on, um, and so you could you could buy the platform yourself from Intershop, or you could rent uh, an iteration of GSI from. Uh, or of Intershop from from GSI. Um, so so uh, Stephen is back with a new e-commerce platform, um, and it has in it a bunch of the things you would expect to see in a, a brand new made from scratch uh, commerce platform from somebody that that knows the market well. And so it's it's heavily mobile centric. It leverages a lot of the latest technology in mobile. So it leverages uh, mobile accelerated pages from Google. Um, most exciting for me, um, it natively supports progressive web apps, which is a, a really exciting uh, capability for, for enhancing the mobile experience and having fast loading rich pages. Um, and, you know, it does have uh, sort of a full stack, which is, you know, one of the common trends we're seeing in new e-commerce platforms. It's not just the storefront. It, it has the the order management system. It has some uh, omni-channel features so it can, you know, support, you know, an inventory model in your store and uh, 
uh, on your website and buy online, pick up in store and all those sorts of things. So um, I, I know he raised some money. I think it was like $50 million was a Series B. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, they get some traction in the e-commerce platform space. Yeah, yeah, I know Stephen well, and uh, he has plenty of capital to go retire. So it's interesting to see him kind of stay in the space and continue to innovate after, after kind of, you know, starting in the early days and then uh, founder of Demandware and now kind of working on, I think he calls it like Commerce 3.0. So, so kudos to him from the entrepreneurial standpoint for for having the gusto to stay in there for so long. It's it's an addictive uh, category. Last, <laughs> it, it really is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the last one I saw was. Um, and, and this one, you know, it's kind of funny because we stopped talking about Amazon opening fulfillment centers on the show because they opened like to a month right now. Uh, but Walmart actually had a, uh, has announced uh, the opening of a pretty massive e-commerce fulfillment center. It's a little bit harder to keep track of them because Walmart doesn't announce them like Amazon does now. But I'm pretty sure this is the seventh one. So they're they're kind of in high single digits. Um, and I'm, I'm 99% sure I'm right on that, if it not number seven. Uh, but this one is truly pretty large. So, so Amazon's largest fulfillment centers get up to 1.2 million square feet. This puppy is 2.2 million square feet, and it spans two buildings. Uh, it's in Florida. It's got 1,500 jobs. One of the little blurbs, I always read these things. I'm kind of a logistics nerd, uh, is the, they said this um, next generation pickup module system. So I'm not exactly sure what that is. I mean, I know what pickup is, but I don't know what the module system is. It sounds like some proprietary way of doing things. Um, it effectively has 33 miles of shelves. So I was thinking, wow, that's a, that's a lot of, uh, if you had to, you know, if you unfortunately ended up on one end of that and you had to walk to the other end to get the widget, that would be bad. So hopefully their system is more optimized than that. Yeah, I think it's actually automated. I think part of that pickup module system is that the, that, uh, you know, it's the automated shelving systems where, you know, the sort of shelves are stored in 3D and it, it pulls the shelf to the picker instead of the picker having to go to the shelf. So the shelf could have to travel 33 miles? Uh, yeah. Well, probably, uh, only in a, in a really bad sort would it have to go that far, but yeah. <laughs> okay. I want to see these 33 miles. That's, Maybe it's like if you stacked them, they would go to the moon or something. I don't know. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't make sense to me. So I thought I would uh, maybe. I'm sure the listener out there, we have folks at Walmart, they can explain it to us. Yeah. The one thing I know for sure is if I ever need to hide the Ark of the Covenant, I know where I'm going. Yep. Uh, we're going to put it in Florida in the Walmart fulfillment center. Awesome. And uh, Scott, that's probably going to be a great place to wrap it up because it's happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Um, as always, uh, we would encourage you to continue the dialogue on Facebook. And if you particularly like today's show, we would greatly appreciate a review on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. And also, we are looking to do another listener question show. So uh, use that Facebook page to shoot us your questions, or you can send them to Retail Geek or Scott, S-C-O-T, just one T, Wingo, W-I-N-G-O, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and we hope to get your questions so we can have a show just of listener questions. That's going to be awesome. And uh, if any of our listeners are listening to this on the day it's published and you happen to be going to Comic-Con in San Diego or NRF Tech in San Diego, um, I will be there. So uh, feel free to drop me a line on Twitter and it would be great to meet up. Uh, so until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.